Good evening. Welcome to Tuesday evening chapel. Welcome. Welcome. We are being transformed into Christ likeness. One more time. We are being transformed into Christ likeness. Uh, how's the process? A little, little challenging sometimes, huh? Yeah. But in the end, it's worth it. Amen? Amen? Well, that wasn't kind of tentative. In the end, it's worth it. Amen? Okay, just making sure. We have a special guest this evening. It's Dr. Jim Bond. He is uh, General Superintendent Emeritus for the Church of the Nazarene. Uh, he served here once as faculty member and also as chaplain uh, a few years back. And uh, back in the winter, if you remember, we began a conversation or some consideration about the relationship. The relationship that we have between, between us and God. And uh, we... Dr. Bond didn't get to, come to finish, so that's why we've asked him back. So tonight is part one, and tomorrow is part two, so those of you that don't have class tomorrow, it'll be worth the trip to come back, I promise. Uh, in order for us to, um, to kind of tune our hearts and uh, get, our, get ourselves focused, I want us to sing a song of, of worship. Two, three, four. Accept the praise of our lips. May the meditations of our heart be in tune with yours, we pray. For you are holy God, there is none other beside you. And you call us to be in your image. We give you praise, we give you thanks. With all creation we sing praise to the King of Kings. You are my everything. And I will adore you. All of his people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good evening, everyone. Great to see you all. Been a few weeks since I was here, early January. I just barely got started, and suddenly a loud clanging of cymbals began to happen somewhere out around here. Someone set off the fire alarm. Are you ready to admit who it was now? Come clean? Most of my ministry was either on or near college campuses, so uh, I know how young people on campuses are. <laughs> so uh, fess up, we'll forgive you, and we'll move on from that. Well, I, um, the fact is, you, if you did that, you're probably sorry because you get a double dose of me tonight and tomorrow night. <laughs> Well, I'm a long-time Nazarene. I've been in the Church of the Nazarene all of my life, a third-generation Nazarene. My grandfather was an old-time evangelist and pastor in the Church of the Nazarene, and for many years what we now call a bivocational pastor. Never had the privilege of any kind of formal learning like you're enjoying now. He worked hard on the farm during the day and studied by a kerosene lamp at night, preached the gospel on Sunday. And many of you come out of maybe such heritage as that, but I'm grateful. 
When I was here before, I, I told a little bit of my story, and I want to just pick up where I was and move on. Maybe should reiterate a little bit. How many of you were here on that night? Yeah, well, okay. We, you remember what I was talking about? Remember where I was? Dr. Dan back here, he says he knows. So would you come and reiterate that? Just <laughs> well, let me, um, let me give you a verse that is kind of my life verse, and it is at the heart of what I want to talk about tonight and tomorrow night. It's in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. The first thoughts I ever had about Jesus as a child were warm and wonderful, wooing and beckoning, calling me to himself. I think the first song I ever learned to sing, probably like many of you, was Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And that was grooved into my heart and into my mind. And, you know, as a, as a child, I just fell in love with Jesus. And Jesus spoke to me. Not, not an audible voice, but it was what we call prevenient grace, a gentle urging, an inner light showing the way. It was a sweet, tender, continuous nudging in the depths of my being, calling me to do the right and to follow after God. And so I followed that voice, and it drew me into life's most profound relationship. I marvel when I think about it, but it started when I was just five years of age. I probably said before, but it's worth saying to those of you who are here tonight, incidentally, how many of you are thinking about pastoral ministry or some form of pastoral ministry? Let me see your hands. I'm sure that's many of you, most of you probably. And you need to know that most people make their decisions for Jesus before they're 19 years of age. So if you're going to get this world around you saved, the right time is when they're young, just like it was with me when I was just a child. So by inviting Jesus into my heart and life, I moved immediately from an estranged relationship with God caused by the common sinful condition that we all are a part of in the human race, and it moved me into a glorious, saving relationship with God and Jesus Christ. Was it a dramatic moment in my life? Well, not like uh, Gary Haynes, for example. How many of you know Gary? NBC grad, one of the great evangelists in the Church of Nazarene. As a matter of fact, my son pastors in Junction City, Kansas, and Gary is there preaching, started Sunday morning, goes through Wednesday night preaching in Junction City. Gary was saved out of a nightclub life. Transformation incredible. Not long after he was saved, came here, and God prepared him in a marvelous way for ministry, and he's had long years of effective and powerful ministry as an evangelist in the Church of the Nazarene. No, I did not have that kind of experience that Gary did. It was very, very subtle, but very, very powerful, and marked a change of the focus of my life. I suppose you could call it a new birth. I didn't understand it theologically, obviously, but it marked the entrance point, the beginning point of, of, of the relationship that I enjoyed with Jesus Christ across these long years. Well, 
Jesus took me tenderly by the hand and simply said, follow me. So I just started following. In my fumbling, faltering adolescent and, and youthful kind of way, I, I just started following Jesus. Sometimes very close, sometimes at distance. But he was always there even when I fumbled and faltered with his tender hand saying, it's okay, just come closer and keep following. So follow him I did, and then one day in my 15th year, and I told you, those of you who were here on that, uh, that January night, about uh, him coming to me and speaking to me very simply. I'd fallen in love with basketball, and it was kind of my life, and he said, I want the basketball, and we wrestled over that for some weeks and some months, and I don't have time to reiterate that story tonight. But one of us finally willing to yield the basketball, I realized he didn't want the basketball, he wanted me. He wanted to be at the center of my life. He didn't want anything else contending for leadership in my life. He wanted to be the leader. And so the disposition that was warring against Jesus was this spirit within me that's part of the human condition wanting to be in control. And he said, I want to be in control of your life and something really big hinges on whether or not you're willing to let go of your life and let me be at the center. So I relinquished the basketball, didn't realize that in doing that I'd made the second most critically important decision in my life to let him be absolutely sovereign. And so that decision, I believe, was essential to the ongoing relationship because he then became the ruling disposition. He became the dominating concentration. He became the focal point of my life from that point forward. So the old inclination to want to rule my own life was cleansed and I was filled with the very spirit of the living Jesus himself as a 15-year-old boy. And to be filled with the spirit of Jesus is to have the disposition of Jesus. It is to, to be consumed by Jesus and wanting to live like Jesus. So I, I call this, if you want the theological term, entire sanctification. It was like opening a passage into a new and deeper joy and fulfillment in the relationship. I'd moved from conflicted leadership of my life to acknowledgement of Christ's oversight of every aspect of my life. So now I can say with deeper meaning than ever before, to me to live is Christ. Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you come to that moment? Inevitably, in the relationship, you will come to that moment. That moment when he'll put his finger on the basketball in your life. That basketball just represented kind of the last bastion of self-rule for me. I'll do anything. I'll go anywhere. But please, let me hold on to this. He didn't want that. He wanted me. He wanted to be in control of my life. He knows what your basketball is, and he can put his finger on that as well. So just that little background hurriedly, and then I, I just want to give you a little overview of of, of, of uh, I think maybe three points that I made. I think I just started into the fourth point of my message. Nine-point message. 
I've actually done it in 18 minutes before, so I know I can get through it in a hurry if I need to, but I've got tonight and tomorrow night. So I've got a few minutes to work my way through some of these things, and these are important things to me. This is my story. You have your story. We must be, be prepared to share our story if we're going to impact this world in which we live. Well, I took my watch off. I'll put it back on. I see you got the clock right there, so I can look at it when I need to. Well, let me just say, make some reflections and observations about what I call the relationship. First of all, the years have taught me that it is the relationship that is of ultimate importance and not the experiences we may have. Not even the experience of new birth or the experience of entire sanctification. Those are passages. We enter into the relationship through new birth, and as we continue in the relationship, inevitably, I believe, we'll come to that moment when we must acknowledge Jesus not only as Savior, but as the sovereign Lord of our lives and experience the cleansing from the sinful condition and the filling with the Holy Spirit that is the very Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So I concur with the traditional understanding of the Church of the Nazarene when we think about sanctification, it is both an instantaneous experience and it is a gradual, lifelong relationship and development of our lives. And that's why the theme of the year, that's what you're talking about, being conformed to the image of God in Jesus Christ. Now, I think in my early days in the Church of Nazarene, we emphasized the experience of entire sanctification to the neglect of the process. It was almost as though if you, if you experience entire sanctification, you've just experienced a blast off that'll take you right into the New Jerusalem, and you don't have to do anything between here and there. We never did believe that, but it was sort of implied, of course. So what happened? Well, when we realized we'd been emphasizing the experience to the neglect of, of the relationship and the, and the progressive walk, we swung clear to the other extreme and began to preach this to, ne to do the neglect of this. And we must always be seeking the balance between the two. I could talk a long time at that point, but I, I must move on quickly. I think we are at the time in the history of our church when we need to strike a healthy biblical balance between the process and the experience itself. I've come, secondly, to believe that the relationship is all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Living in Jesus, living for Jesus, and living like Jesus through his indwelling spirit. In this relationship, as it deepens and you walk with Jesus, you just have a magnificent obsession with Jesus. Here's my little formula every day when I, when I first arise and my thoughts come into my mind early in the morning, I look into his face and say, I worship you, Jesus. I worship you as God, as, as Savior and Lord of my life. So I worship you and I want to tell you that I love you with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. So help me this day to think Jesus. Help me to talk Jesus and everything, above everything else, help me to live, Jesus, in all the context where I, I might go this very day. So, 
I really have come to the conclusion that the most profound and helpful of the several terms we use in trying to describe or define scriptural holiness, that term is Christ-likeness. Holiness is Christ-likeness. That's a term that has far-reaching theological implications. I think it's our most winsome and engaging term. It is simple, yes, but it is utterly profound and one which I think resonates with postmoderns. I think ultimately it's probably the best definition of holiness in, in, in a human life like yours and like mine. Now, mm, I, uh, I, I don't have time to linger long here. One of my favorite people is, is uh, E. Stanley Jones, great Methodist missionary statesman back in the last century. Wrote to, I think, probably 35 or 40 books, and I've read many of them. Maybe the classic that sums it all up is the unchanging person and the unshakable kingdom. That's kind of a distillation of all that he taught and, and, and wrote about and believed over the years. But Jones said, holiness, apart from Christ-likeness, is hollowness. And I agree totally with that definition. John Wesley himself said, holiness is having the mind of Christ and walking as he walked. It's all about Jesus, and the longer I've lived, the more convinced I've become that holiness is all about not only knowing Jesus, but living Jesus in your life. I said the third point, I, I think I just finished, and I, I'll just mention it rather quickly here, and I may get into four or five before I'm through here tonight. But I said the relationship is not about perfectionism. And that might not trouble you at all, but that's an issue with which many of us wrestled, particularly in the earlier days of the Church of the Nazarene. I uh, struggled needlessly in pursuit of living the perfect life, thinking that somehow it might be possible for me to do that. And Jesus came to me one day and said very simply, relax, Jim. You're never going to be perfect. I'm the only perfect one in this relationship. So keep your eyes on me. Keep following me. Continue to walk in the light of my word. Be obedient. And I will continue to transform you in the very image of my life. I will make you more and more like myself. Shape you into perfection. That's his goal. Christians are not cast into molds. They're chiseled out like statues, someone said. I'm a person God is making, like a statue God is shaping. God is molding me, correcting God's intent on my perfecting. He's got a long way to go on me yet. I sometimes refer to him as the chiseler, the great chiseler. And that chiseling is a painful process. But it is in that process that more and more we are brought into the image of God made known to us in Jesus Christ. Well, let me move quickly to something else. Number four, the relationship is not about legalism. This is good stuff, new stuff now. That, that was old stuff I talked about when I was here before. The relationship is not about legalism. I, I think legalism is, is seeking to win God's favor by giving attention undue attention, if you will, to living simply by rules. 
Now, as a young man, I aspired to live a holy life. I mean, I really did. I wanted to live my whole life for Jesus and be holy. But I had to work through a lot of things, including the debilitating notion that to be holy did not mean essentially to live by a list of prohibitions. Interestingly, you know, when I was a kid, you could almost name the bad things you didn't do on ten fingers, you know. You don't drink, you don't smoke, don't gamble, whatever that was, I didn't understand. You don't go to movies. You just don't do those kinds of things, and if you refrain from them, somehow you're, you're going to be living a holy life. I believe in prohibitions. Let me tell you something. You cannot live a holy life in this world unless you abstain from some things that are evil and wicked in this world. I, I, I don't have it exactly in my mind, but I remember someone said something like, uh, what one generation rejects, the next generation will tolerate, and the following generation will embrace. We've done that with movies. Stayed away from them. Boy, when I looked on what they, they were doing then in old black and white movies and think that those were bad compared to what we have today, it blows me away. I'm not a great moviegoer. Occasionally I go to a movie. You'll know how sophisticated my, my taste is when I tell you my favorite movie is Happy Feet. You haven't even seen it. I took my two granddaughters to it at Christmas a few years ago, and we laughed all the way there and all the way home. And Every time we talk about movies anymore, I just say happy feet, and they say, you want to go again, Papa? <laughs> so I'm not a great moviegoer at all. But I think movies have taught me how essential it is to teach people how to make value judgments if they're going to live the holy life. I, uh, I think there is great wisdom in what we have in the manual, we used to call the general and special rules. Now we call it the conduct of Christian behavior. It's the collective wisdom of the church across the ages. Essentially, we picked it up from, from Wesley and, and, and the Methodist and just reiterated it in our own manual. And, and I view the conduct of Christian behavior to be guidelines that should govern the behavior of anyone who's trying to live a Christian life a holy life. You just try to profit from those who've gone before. And if it was not good for them, then take that principle and apply it to your life. Struggling, struggling. Jesus taught me that living by rules, though, per se, is woefully inadequate. And one day spoke to me and said, you have to learn to resist evil if you're going to live a holy life in this world. But evil is sometimes very subtle and not easily recognizable. It's not all black and white. So this means that decision-making about right and wrong can be very difficult, so follow me now, and I'm going to teach you how to make value judgments between good and evil, between good and half-good, and between half-good and great. And my goal for you always is to help you make high moral decisions and make great decisions as you live out your life. Always remember, though, that the relationship is based on grace. 
not on your legal adherence to religious rules. And he didn't stop there. He said, let me remind you that the more you get involved in doing good to others, the less you'll be distracted by the temptations to sin. He said, I want you to be known not so much by what you do not do as I want you to be known by what you do. I want you to be a positive force in this world. I want you to go out there and make a difference in this world. And you'll do that by getting involved. So essentially, he said, go out into your world and be my power and my presence among your friends and family, among the disadvantaged and the marginalized. Allow my spirit to flow in you and through you. Love the lost and the broken and the helpless. Always be motivated by love, guided by justice, and act with compassion. That's the Christ-like way to live. Number five. Wow, time's up. One more, quickly. The relationship, no, it's too big. It's too big. I'll, I'll save that one. Let me just think here for a moment if I can get into something that's, that's not so big because that number five is maybe the most important. Well, let me go to number six. The relationship has to be faithfully nurtured and cultured and cultivated, I should say, every day, every moment of every day of your life. Not enough to enter into the experiences. It's walking with Jesus every day. It's, uh, it's following Jesus' word. In, in, in three of the gospel writers, they talk about Jesus. Two of them, I think, the synoptic writers, talk about uh, taking up your cross and following Jesus. But it is Luke who says, take up your cross daily and follow Jesus. Paul said, I die daily. Living the Christian life is a daily thing. Being filled with God's Spirit is not a one-time happening. Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Holy Spirit, it says in, in most English translations, literally in the original language. It doesn't say be filled, it says be being filled. What does that mean? It means it's not enough to be filled with the Holy Spirit in the moment when you were entirely sanctified. That may have been a great and beautiful moment in your mind. But if that's all you have is the memory of that moment, then that probably leaves you dry and empty and maybe even spiritually defeated in the current moment. So here's the secret, be being filled. And, and the, glorious, the glorious fact of that is that God proffers that to you and me every moment of every day. I can tell you, my friends, this little bit of doggerel is true. Yesterday helped me. Today, he did the same. How long will this continue? Forever. Praise his name. <laughs> it's going to the fountain of grace every day and drinking from that grace to our own soul's delight and help and nourishment and strength so that we can live in the mighty power of God's Holy Spirit. To talk longer at that point, maybe we'll have time to pick up on it a little tomorrow night. Because I, I think I've learned over the years, I'm not a great man, I'm not a strong man. I'm a very weak man. Spirit-filled indeed, I testify to the glory of God. But you remember Paul cried out to God about the thorn in the flesh. 
deliver me now, quickly, in this moment. I want to be free. And God said to him, no, I'm not going to do it for you in a moment because why? My strength is made perfect in your weakness. So yeah, I'm a weak guy. I have to rely on that grace every day. I need God's Holy Spirit to fill me afresh and anew for every moment of every day, every challenge of my life that I may live that moment to the glory and honor Jesus Christ. Let's stand. Oh, Lord, I thank you for your stories in the lives of these men and women. It would be wonderful, inspiring, challenging, refreshing just to sit with each and hear their story. Help us to shape that story in such a way that we can communicate it to a world that desperately needs to know that God has spoken in Jesus Christ, and the Spirit of Jesus is very much at work in this world today, and you can use the telling of the stories to woo and draw men to yourself. Refire our souls and help us to live to your glory through Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.